You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Thomas Lyon and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and I am your host. Um, So welcome everyone to today's podcast focusing on um, the CIOs within the NHS and thank you all for taking the time to take to participate you know I really do appreciate it we understand how busy you guys are in your current role so you all know me but by way of introduction I'm Thomas Lyon I work for evolution recruitment in the NHS team and we are committed to helping people and the NHS organization realize their potential so to bring that to life our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals building trust to make business easier what we're doing we are collaborating with NHS organisations, helping them build high performing digital teams. How are we doing that? We do that through curating and sharing insights and industry best practice into the ever evolving NHS and digital industry. So this is exactly what we're going to be doing today as we share some of your insights from a C-level perspective. So before we just like to get going, to get everyone started, let's go around. Uh, do the introductions. So if you could please introduce yourself, uh, the trust you work for and the role within that trust, that'd be much appreciated. David, as you're at the top of my screen, would you like to go first, please? Sure. So I'm David Newey. I'm Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Royal Marsden. Brilliant. And uh, Andy? Hi everybody, I'm Andy Hayward. I'm Director of Digital Services for the Welsh Ambulance Service. So I'm responsible to Chief Exec uh, for Digital for 999-111 Emergency Medical and uh, the 111 website as well as well as uh, non-emergency patient transport. Brilliant, thank you Andy. And not last not but least, Toby. <laughs> Hi, I'm Toby Avery. I'm the Chief Digital Information Officer at Surrey Borders Partnership. We're a mental health and learning disabilities trust, um, mainly based in Surrey. Um, I'm also the mental health exec lead for Northwest Surrey um, and the chair of the Surrey Data Governance Group. Fantastic. Thank you, Toby. So thank you, everyone, for your uh, introductions. Appreciate your probably quite familiar with Teams now with it being, you know, the kind of the, the key platform that the NHS uses. Um, but just to kind of reiterate that better flow for the podcast, if you wish to make a point or have a question in regards while someone else is speaking, um, please use the raise the hand function, which is located at the top of the team screen next to the three dots. And then I'll come back to you um, as soon as possible and when to do so. Um, so thank you for all for sending me your questions. There were some really, really good ones in there. Um, and I'm, I've no doubt it will draw out an excellent discussion for the next uh, hour. And if you don't mind, David, I'd like to start with yours. Um, so your question was, is open EHR the silver bullet for clinical interoperability? I just want to know, would you like to elaborate on that um, and see what your thoughts are before we direct it to the rest of the panel? Yes, certainly. So um, Simon Eccles and others have uh, put forward the idea of separation of data from the application. And um, at the moment, open EHR uh, is being touted as the method by which to do that. There's been a number of number of uh, exemplar projects where uh, that's been attempted. Um, most recently, the Christie NHS Foundation Trust have uh, signed up with Better to um, deliver uh, cancer records using OpenEHR. Um, but it just seems to be the direction of travel. Um, and I just wondered, is is this the silver bullet that everyone makes out or actually is there some gotchas there? Thank you for that. Thank you, Dave. Much appreciated. Um, Toby, what are your thoughts on that? In good Teams fashion, I'm struggling to get off mute. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, I think it's a great question. Um, and and I, I've kind of guess I've been around the block a, a, a few times on different things and kind of got to the conclusion that there are no silver bullets. Um, <laughs> uh, and 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 you know there isn't one one you know ring to rule them all kind of kind of kind of thing. Um, I, I think there's a huge amount of potential with open EHR. Um, I I probably would say that I I err on the side of separation of application and data as being the the direction of travel that we should probably be heading in. But I I don't think that we're there yet. Um, I, I think we're we're on a journey, and I think some brave people need to start that journey. 
um, would kind of be my my take on it. Um, we're not going to get rid of the big monolithic monolithic EPRs overnight. At you know, we've got lots of organisations built bought into very long term contracts um, with a huge amount of money um, invested in those those spaces. So so I, I think we're in a in a space where open EHR or, or similar could help solve the problem, help move us forward. But I don't think it's uh, one or, or the other. I think we've kind of got to operate at two speeds in, in some of this stuff. And I think if you trust will go down the open EHR route, I think hopefully they'll mature that approach. Um, you know, uh, I'm a mental health trust. I don't think open EHR has, has really got the archetypes built for mental health yet. Um, so, so we couldn't easily just jump into open EHR and, and, and use it for, for across our clinical services. But should we be looking at developing those uh, data standards and archetypes for mental health that, that can be um, uh, enable us to get to that place? I think we probably should. Um, and and in, in fact, you know, that that is our, our approach at SABP and the, the, the direction of travel that we're we're aiming to take. But we're also recognizing we aren't just going to dump our existing EPR. Um, uh, you know, tomorrow because actually we're getting value out of it. We're building on it. We're developing it. We're making it better. Um, uh, but we have to move towards uh, something that's going to better serve integrated care in the future. Um, and unless there's significant shifts with some of the traditional EPRs, um, they, 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 I think they really struggle to, to meet the need. Brilliant. No, thank you for that, Tom. We much appreciated. Um, Andy, what are your thoughts on David's question? And any if you'd like to add to Toby's point, please feel free. No, thanks very much. I mean, it, it's potentially part of the puzzle, isn't it? And and it kind of depends on where you're talking about that clinical interoperability. If it's across borders, then obviously everybody needs to do it. Um, but, it, you know, I think that, so it, it it's a very good um, set of principles, but then you've also got the kind of data quality aspect of that. If you're going to start to uh, separate separate data out, you know, in terms of anything that's uh, more kind of manually human inputted, free text or anything else like that. Um, are you going to move to kind of SNOMED CT? Um, what are you going to do around clinical coding to make sure the quality is there? So actually, you know, it, it's it's part of that journey, but actually it's still down to the people that are using it to understand why they have to do certain things and, and record them in certain ways to, uh, and why that's important to them in terms of what they'll be able to see at the back end of it as well. So. I think it's definitely uh, it's like all these things that you've got to strive for improvement not perfection so if you if, if if that's the improvement that you choose to begin with then that's great but then there are other things around that and generally as it always does it comes back to the to the people that are going to be required to use it um really understanding what the benefit is of, of doing that and adopting it properly um, but also then giving feedback and changing it as time goes on as well to make it work for them so um, probably taking a bit broader than the question, but I think, you know, it, it, it's obviously good because it's been adopted all over the place, but I think it's, you know, it, it won't solve the problem on its own. Um, but, but yeah, definitely a step in the right direction, I think. No, thank you for that, Andy. Um, really, good, really good point made. So I've, I've noticed you said about kind of like the um, resistance to the change being one thing. And one thing we do find that when we speak to people about digital transformation in the NHS, and one of the biggest barriers is to kind of that resistance to change. And um, although sometimes it'd be a great idea, and um, there's always going to be kind of those factors into it. David, have you got any points that you'd like to add to what Toby and Andy have said? Um, I mean, I think. Uh... Both uh, Andy and Toby have, have hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think from um, a citizen developer, as is a new phrase I've heard being used, um, it's actually quite good because I think, you know, again, if you're starting with a clean sheet, at least if you've got some archetypes to start using and developing, and particularly aimed at clinicians that want to get into coding and, and um further those archetypes i think it can only be a good thing i think um andy hit the nail on the head the biggest challenge that i've heard about um portability of data isn't so much the actual portability and storage of data it, it is the coding and having a common uh linger franker franker across all the clinical fraternities to what that data means adopting those standards of, of coding I think one of the other things it doesn't kind of address, obviously, is the the gaps in data, um, you know, because you all have to come up to the, the same standard in order to make the repository useful. 
there's no point having big gaps in the data repository if um, uh, because then you've got an incomplete data set to, to base clinical decision support against. So I think there's there's a couple of things against it or not against it, but challenges that have got to be overcome. Um, I mean, and I think, again, it's it's probably a stepping stone on the way because I think we all acknowledge that shunting data around and storing it in multiple locations is not ideal, uh, you know, particularly for requiring a single source of truth. So I think it's um, it's possibly, you know, it's definitely the right a step in the right direction. But I think the whole thing around uh, the way in which clinical data is stored and transmitted between clinical systems and presented and indeed owned by the patient, not necessarily by the EPR provider or the NHS trust is really key here. And I think, you know, maybe as we move more towards personal health records, that might become a um, uh, that might become the end state. So that's my own view. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, David. Um, Toby, please. Thanks. So just I, I, David's just got got me thinking a little bit there. One of one of the challenges that we have in in the two integrated care systems that we uh, we're part of um, is is this idea of data liquidity you know, that you're kind of describing there, David, and and not just with our NHS colleagues, but we we do a huge amount of work with our charity um, sector colleagues, and um, you know no disrespect to 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 those guys, but some some charities that we work with are incredibly small. They don't even have an IT team. They've got a volunteer that does a bit of IT on the side for them. Um, and some of them are very big, like, you know, Bernardo's or NAS or, or you know, and they've got some quite mature technology solutions. Um, and we're offering integrated services with with a number of charities and other NHS organisations, of course. Um, you know, if we're going to enable that data liquidity and that single source of truth kind of construct that, that, that David's talking about, um, yet we've got our data segmented in different EPRs, Excel spreadsheets, back of fag packets, you know, wherever it is, we're really going to struggle to track that patient's journey through our system um, and, and potentially their carers and family and everyone else involved in, 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 in the, the provision of, of that individual's care. How are we going to make sure that they're only telling their story once? How are we going to make sure that they don't get bounced around, around the system? And I do think that sort of the idea of a co common sort of clinical data repository um, the idea of open EHR standards um, is is a potential building block to solve that solve that problem and bring that data together holistically. Doesn't mean it's not without challenges. You've got information governance challenges around that. You've got data ownership. You've got um, medico legal legal sort of uh, issues around some 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 of that sort of stuff. There's all sorts of challenges in there. But if that's the right direction of travel to provide the best outcomes for the people that we're trying to serve. Should we not be being brave and trying to explore how we progress that journey and move things uh, forward so that we can solve some of those uh, issues and, and really provide integrated care for the people that we're trying to serve? Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much, Toby. Is there anything you'd like to add, David or Andy? No, I think I think, you know, if there was one thing that I, I think NHSX could do better um is is actually start looking at, at that whole piece and mm. and developing a, a, a framework because i think some you know somebody's got to take this by the uh the horns as it were yeah. and and spend some quality time and i think part of the problem that um toby sort of touched on is where you've got multiple parties uh i meant the marsden deals with acutes um uh, and and primary care across a number of settings all around the country. I think part of the problem is, is that again, while you silo the data in organisations, um, you've always got those challenges of having that longitudinal record. And I'm really a great believer that the data should sit with the patient. You know, it is in effect the patient's metadata. Um, it can be an open EHR standard or whatever, but I think that really the direction of travel should be looking at uh, an NHS-based personal health record that the patient owns and the patient um, is able to, uh, you know, share. Um, and it's a single source of truth then. That, that That's my view of it. 
Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Thank you, David. Uh, if there's nothing that anyone else would like to add, um, I'm more than happy for me to move on to the next question. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much, guys. Um, so this question comes from uh, Toby Avery, and Toby asks, what, in your opinion, is the biggest gap in terms of driving digital transformation or any transformation for that matter? Um, Toby, would you like to elaborate on that before um, we go ahead and ask David and Andy? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, so, so you know, I, I have a view, I have lots of views, and some of them are quite strong, and not everyone will agree with them, um, which is quite right. but. Um, but I, I have a view that digital is all about change and transformation. Um, and, uh, you, you know, we can ask for a definition of digital and one person will tell you it's ones and zeros. And another person will tell you it's um, it's Netflix doing what Netflix do. You know, and we can get some quite extreme views of what digital is. Um, but for me, it's about how, changing the way we do business, whether that's, you know, uh, you know commercial business or whether it's the, the way we deliver health and care services. Um, and, and, you know, I see a lot of us, and, and I put myself in that bucket, you know, CIO type people um, talking a lot about technology um, and, and often not talking so much about some of the factors around change and transformation that we need to deliver that technology effectively and really make a difference to health and care outcomes. So that's kind of where this question is coming from for me is, is what are the gaps? What are the things we need to do so that we're really delivering effective change and transformation and improving the health and care services that we're trying to offer uh, from our organisations? Brilliant. Thank you, Toby. Um, Andy, would you like to kickstart us with that and we'll see, tell us what your thoughts are on Toby's question. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not going to be anything new to anybody in this space, but I think it goes back to the kind of user need side of things and making sure that you're actually solving a problem that people need to be solved. You, you, back to the kind of the point you're talking about, Netflix and other people like that, they, we don't use them because they're digital. We use them because they're so easy that we can't not, you know, and they've, 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 they've drilled into that user need to a point that they know better than we do what we want and what we need. So, I mean, we're not going to have their R&D budget, but I think it is that kind of element of looking at what the problems are and, and how they need to be answered. And I think, you know, you drop into the classic people process technology thing again as, as well, you know, get as many platitudes out as possible in the one podcast. But, um, <laughs> you know, ultimately you've got to look at, so you've got to look at the people for the need. There's usually a process for answering that already, and and you've got to try and improve that process with a value chain first, and then the technology steps behind that to, to kind of make that happen. Now, there are times where a new technology like RPA or something like that will come along that make that actually might force you to go back over that whole process again because there's something new that could do it even better. But I think that's it. And then I think actually presentationally in terms of adoption and getting people to buy into it as well. It's the I've certainly and it roots the question I've asked later, but I, I've found that actually it's visibly having the the people involved in service delivery and deliver the outcome leading that piece of work. Uh, to a point of being very, very closely involved in it. So when you you're not trying to tell a workforce that is not your own that they need to do this because it's a new system. It's a, it's one of their own, one of their own telling them actually, if you use this, it's going to deliver this outcome. Cause you go to the kind of EHR space um, that, that David talked about earlier. And um, to, to a point putting something big like that in or a new pass system or something like that is actually going to be a disruption to begin with. And it's it, in some areas, it might not even improve the day to day. To, to begin with, you know, if you go from putting like we're going to do in terms of a an electronic record, you know, from writing it down to putting it in on a on a tablet, that might not speed it up on the, at the beginning. But then, as you integrate more and more systems to pre-populate it, and then you don't have to write the same thing three or four times, and then actually you're able to get the data immediately rather than wait, you know, uh, a period of time for it to go through validation. Those changes start to add up. But yeah, I, I think you know the the biggest gap for me is making sure that it. It answers that need and then the right people are involved to kind of make sure you get the adoption uh, and then there's the skills and the training piece I suppose as well isn't it because you know sometimes the system might be hampered by the fact that you haven't trained the people to use the platform that it lives on um, so I suppose the short answer would be a lot <laughs> but in terms of, you just kind of have to uh, there's a lot to coordinate but I think as a result of that you've always got to stick to that what was the reason you were doing it in the first place and, and how is it fixing that uh, and I should probably stop there and not monopolise any more time. No, it's absolutely fine. Thank you for sharing that, Andy. I mean, I speak to a lot of leaders uh, within the NHS in digital space and 
one of the common themes that we talk about is digital transformation. And one of the kind of main questions we like to ask is what, what are the biggest barriers to digital transformation? And what you've just said there, it seems to be a common theme amongst other trusts. You know, the resistance to change, people don't understand the benefits. They don't understand, you know, it's got to get worse before it gets better. And in the long run, it will ultimately benefit them. Um, I think that's always going to be a, a, a big kind of barrier to the transformation NHS. David, what are your thoughts? Um, so I'm, I'm going to echo something, uh, some of what Andy said. Um, I'll just share this um, this screen as well. Um, not, I'm sure not everyone can see that, but um, one of the things that I did uh, recently was undertake a study um, of my own organisation, and from it, and the review literature came up with this digital acceleration framework. And I think one of the things that I came up with the the conclusion. Um, I surveyed, um, I think it was about 500 band four to seven members of staff to ascertain why, why is it we've got so much kit out there and so much digital technology and yet we're not as an organisation as the NHS transforming quickly enough? Because that's the question. And um, the, the results were surprising. Um, the, the key thing and the key challenge actually is for us as digital services stroke IT departments is to what degree are we prepared to uh, relinquish power and control and put it in the hands of users to implement their own digital transformation. And that's a very hard thing that we've all got to look at, at you know, at what we're prepared to do in terms of supporting users with training and governance and, and letting them carry on. But before you even get to that point, um, it's really important that end users have performant technology. Um, one of the one of the feedback, uh, one of the, the bits of feedback that we got is that if you've got users fighting with slow PCs, logging on, you know, log on times of three or four minutes, networks dropping, um, clunky software, software that's not intuitive or helpful, then they are so busy during the course of their day fighting the technology, they don't actually have the mental bandwidth to think about how they can innovate uh, digitally. So, that's a real key thing is take away their daily pain, uh, provide performant end user technology and that requires investment. The next thing is that really we need to implement flexible software platforms, which is where open air comes into a degree, but allow uh, but but move away from very prescriptive end use, uh, sorry, third party driven software that only third parties can change and you know, develop more flexible software platforms. So it's only when you get to that point that you can then start training users on how to use, configure and implement their own transformation within their own departments. Um, and then when you layer on that, the governance component um, as well and how they implement change and, and building up that change network at the grassroots then it is about creating this autonomous organisation. And I think the problem with the NHS at the moment is that those software platforms, because of the mix of investment, you know, some um, like the GDEs, um, you know, had that investment up front, um, other trusts got left behind. And until everyone has, has got to a base level, again, it keeps coming to this, until we're all at the same level in terms of performance, um, and in terms of having modern uh, infrastructure and modern platforms, um, we're always the IT departments are always going to be the bottleneck in implementing transformation. And you know, the the public complained about GPs being a bottleneck in terms of access to services. When the same way, uh, digital service teams can be bottlenecks to implementing digital transformation. And until we move ourselves out of that space and actually open it up and empower our users, then I think um, we will never really evolve as, a, as an NHS as, as fast as we could do. That's very interesting, David. Thank you. Um, Toby, have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I love the sort of citizen developer um, kind of approach that, that, that David's talking about there. Um, you know, one of my experiences has been that actually if you want to go and talk to the digital, the real, 
this is going to sound really bad, but the, the, the digital folk often aren't the people in the digital team. The, the real digital folk are often the, the, the junior doctor that's out there really trying to drive some change at the front line or, or the nurse over there or, or, or some operation or admin team out there really doing some clever digital stuff. And oftentimes they're working around the IT department to do it. Um, and, and, you know, those are the people that we really need to tap into. And we need to be in a position where we can enable them, uh, as, as David was describing, to, to really drive that change and transformation at the, at, at the front line. But we need the right guardrails in place. We need, we need to be able to do it safely so that so the data is safe and we aren't getting, you know, the, the spurious access databases and Excel spreadsheets all over the place that, that hold critical clinical data, but they're stored on someone's hard drive or whatever it might be. Um, so we need to get the right guardrails in place to, to pr protect that. But I, I do like that. And I really liked, you know, what Andy was saying about the um, uh, starting with the need. If we don't start with the right, trying to solve the right problem, we get, we're going to get the wrong outcome. Um, you know, what, what I would add, add to that a little bit or emphasize a little bit more, and I think Andy said it, but uh, the idea of user-centered design, I think, is key. We, we, we have to, we, we've started changing our language a little bit at SABP. Um, it, we used to talk a lot about clinical engagement. We're starting to talk about clinical involvement. So we're not just engaging people sporadically in the odd meeting to say, tick the box to say we had a doctor talk to us about this or a nurse talk to us about that piece of work. Actually, we're embedding them in the design of, of, of the solution that we're trying to trying to build or develop. Um, so so we, we, we've built the concept of design teams to, to really work that through. Uh, often uh, we have numerous clinical people that are full-time in some of those design teams. Um, and then we work with the operational clinical teams that we're building whatever it is we're building for to, to try and get that right. So they're involved in the thinking, they're involved in the design, they're, they're sometimes involved maybe in the build, um, but they own they own that thing. And so, so like Andy said, when they come out the other end of it, they'll adopt it, they'll use it. it, it it'll, it'll spread much better because they're bought into it because they own it. It's not something that's been done to them. It's been something that's built with them. Um, so I, I, for me, that that is that is really key. But but what we sometimes fall into the trap of is is doing that front end stuff, if you like, and then we forget about the back end and the back end is just as important. We've got to get the right infrastructure guardrails and safety and security, uh, clinic, digital clinical safety. You know, uh, it has to be appropriate for the tools that we're using, you know, all these different things, IG and so on and so forth. But but for me, you know, if you're not getting that people bit right, which I think, you know, both Andy and David have really sort of brought out really, really strongly. If we're not getting that people bit right, uh, we can put all the technology in the world in place. It's not going to change the way we do business and it's not really going to drive improvement in the outcomes that we're, we're we're looking for. And that's what we've been doing for years in the NHS. We've been throwing tech at people um, without uh, really understanding the user need, without really fixing those basics that, that, that David talked about, so that actually we can drive innovation, improvement and transformation um, on top of that, and then empower those those citizen developer type individuals to, to really get on and, 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 and do what they're good at and, and drive improvement in their uh, particular services. The only other thing I'd probably add is, is you need a culture that's ready for transformation and change. Um, and I think David might have alluded to this. I think it was David. Um, but but if you haven't got if your organization isn't ready to empower people to drive change, yeah, it's not going to happen. You, you've, you've got to have the culture that enables think people to fail fast and recognize that sometimes things aren't going to work. Actually, let's back out of that. Let's stop throwing good money after bad um, and change our tack a little bit. Um, you know, and, and, and stop blaming for failure. Sometimes failure is the best learning process we've got, you know, within guard, within guardrails, within safety parameters and all those sorts of things. But but sometimes actually trying something, innovating, uh, iterating um, uh, and, and, and then recognizing when it doesn't work and changing it is, is a really important way of, of moving things forward and enabling us to innovate and drive improvement. Um, so we have to take out the blame culture if we're going to really drive transformation um, at scale and pace, I, I would suggest. That's brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much, Toby. And um, there's some very interesting points there, and it seems to be that some of the biggest points made is like you know people can be uh, one of the biggest gaps. And I really like the way you mentioned about you know um, changing language from engaging to involving. I think naturally as humans, when they feel like they're more involved and they've got more of a choice, they are more inclined to kind of jump on board with the change and the process. 
Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. And if no one's got anything else to add, I'll move direct on to uh, Andy's question. Now, this is a really interesting question because I think it'd be good to get, you know, three different viewpoints on this one. Is it the role of the CIO to lead or enable change? Andy, would you like to elaborate more on that before we direct it to David and Toby? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of segues straight off the uh, the back of the discussion we've just had, really, in terms of, you know, how much you there to, to provide the environment for for transformation and innovation to happen or, or are you there actually to bring new technology there to the fore and, and try and get the organization to adopt it because you think there's value there um, and I think there's a real kind of tension there because you know, to an extent who who's going to care about cloud computing for example uh, you know uh, managed service service for want of a better way of putting it you know so so what's your role as a cio there is that to say that we need to go to cloud or is it to pick up the different kind of uh use cases that you're getting through and then and then put those into a kind of cloud transformation strategy that helps that you know the cloud's just one example but i just think um it's a really interesting tension because I think a lot of us get into digital health because we want to drive that front end improvement. You know, you've generally got personal experience. I know certainly I have, you know, personal experiences of things you'd like to improve from kind of uh, how you've interacted with healthcare in the past. But but actually within the role, how much of it is to seed that step back and actually just create the environment where people at the front line can do that, engaging with the patient. So I just think it's a really interesting tension. I'm not sure there's a one right answer to it, but I just thought it'd be an interesting question to sort of ask of, of David and Toby to kind of see what you think around it. No, it's a very interesting question, Andy. And that's why, you know, I was quite excited for just excited this one because it'd be good to see, you know, three different people in, um, in different trusts and see what their viewpoints are in kind of that C-level position. Um, Toby, would you like to kickstart us? Yeah, sure. I mean, the one word answer is, Yes, probably, <laughs> um, but um, but 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 to sort of expand on that a, a little bit, um, uh, I, I recognise the tension that Andy Andy talks about there. It, it is it is quite real, I think. Um, and and the answers were, you know, are, are we there to deliver cloud cloud solutions or whatever? Versus are we there to do front end change? We're probably there to do both, I guess. Um, is is the reality of of the world? But um, but but. You know that's the the trick of the the, the CIO kind of role, I suppose. Um, you know, if if you talk to um, uh, Chime, I don't know if you guys are well. I know you are, David. Don't you, Chime? They talk about um, the, the the development of the CIO, CIO 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and and you know the CIO 1.0 is is I guess your traditional IT director type role. This is more of a technology focused role in in my interpretation of it all the way through to CIO 3.0, which is, is you know, really the, the transformational business leader um, that's enabling digital change. And, uh, you know, the reality is just because you're CIO 3.0 doesn't mean you still don't have the responsibility of CIO 1.0. You've still got the IT department sitting under you. You've still got critical infrastructure sitting sitting under your remit. You've still got to deliver cloud services or whatever it is that, 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 that we're delivering in that space. Um, and so that creates a tension in you because you're now doing that and you're doing, you know, you, you're being that sort of transformational business leader. Um, and, and for me, you know, how do you solve that tension? A big part of that is about the team that you build that enables you to do it. So if I was sitting here focusing all day, every day on uh, our, our core infrastructure type, type activities, our technologies, um, I wouldn't be able to do my job. Um, so so I, I've, you know, we've built built a team and you know it's not perfect by any stretch but but we're on a journey um and and we're trying to build the capabilities where we've got the right people at the right level to focus on the right things so that me as the as, as the leader if you like um can focus on the things that i need to focus on um so that i can engage with the business so that i can engage with the board so that i can engage in the the various groups and subcommittees and 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 and, and with our frontline staff in it in, in a different way pre-covid i would have been out on sites a lot more as well um it's been a lot, bit more challenging the last 18 months, but 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 making those connections so that I can really understand what we're trying to do as an organisation, how we're trying to improve health and care services, connecting with with families and carers and, and people who are using our services in a different way. Um, and, and so that I, I can bring that insight back to to my technology leader or, or my design leader or, you know, whatever other capabilities we've got, our, our CCIO type individuals or whoever. And we can come together as a collaborative um, to to really 
work through the tensions that do exist and work out how best we can sort of address those tensions and take things forward uh, both strategically and tactically because we have to do do both don't we um and and you know I, I kind of talk about sometimes the the idea of you know my job is not to have all the answers my job is to bring clever people together to do clever stuff and and if, if we can build that right team um and and i, I can build the you know the team with with the people that are amazing at technology and you know what they're not interested in the business particularly because you know they're all about the technology you know and i need to recognize that's great that has value that has that is so important to moving us forward um and if i can connect those right people together um then i'm kind of i kind of feel that i'm doing my job and i'm i'm leading that leading that change um and and you know it's a journey though we're not going to get it right every day sorry oh, I, I could go on about this sort of stuff for ages I'm no actually just told me we had a similar conversation and i really like that you know it seems like you kind of see yourself as in you see the bigger picture and you put it into motion you know and i like that because you kind of showing kind of recognition to all like the little cogs and parts that make up um you know the, the dream or the vision if you will of where you want the trust to go um david what are your thoughts um, so I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Um, I've got to be honest, we can do as much as the uh, individual trust boards will allow us to do. So a, a lot of CIO roles were actually just rebadged IT director roles, still reported into, you know, CFO or the coup or, or what have you. Um, still very much pigeonholed to, you know, feeding and watering servers and tin and networks and that sort of thing. And I think there is a massive, massive job and Chime addresses this. But I think um, there's a massive job of educating trust boards as to what the value of a CIO is. Um, you know, it, Toby's absolutely right. You know, give give me a business problem. We can look at what type of technical uh, technologies are out there to address it. it might, there may not be a technology to address it. It might be actually, you know, um, something that we can do with our existing, you know, refinement of existing processes or whatever. But I think there's got to be a trust. There's got to be a trust and a respect by NHS trust boards that CIOs can bring value to the table, that they can get close and understand business problems and understand the business, uh, and that their views and um, input is valued and valuable. Um, and then we can get on with the job of actually helping to transform and lead transformation. Um, and Toby's quite right in what he said, you know, the role of the CIO within NHS Trust has moved so way past thinking about TIN. A correctly calibrated uh, team will have specialists in those areas, and that's what you would want. Um, but the CIO has moved past that, but I just don't think that there's sufficient education out there or trust. And I think in part there's a, a, there's a legacy view of uh, and a parochialism within NHS trust boards as to who should and shouldn't sit on the board. Um, and I think we've got to break that mould. I really do. Um, you know, we <coughs> or NHS Digital um, did a great job of doing uh, trust cybersecurity awareness, uh, trust board cybersecurity awareness sessions to make people aware of, of uh, or directors aware of, you know, the, the issues and threats around cybersecurity. Um, they really need to do one now about digital transformation and the importance of CIO in 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 adding value to uh, the trust strategic direction, uh, as opposed to being. Um, it, it's almost like we're there then to facilitate a, a an existing strategy or something that's been thought up without necessarily inputting into it. And I think that's a that's a missed opportunity for the NHS. Um, and I think that uh, uh, that is the challenge that the organisation has rather than the individuals. No, that's very interesting, David. It's just saying that, you know, you're quite restricted in your current role. And is uh, anything like you'd like to add to that, Andy, to Toby's and David's comments? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, 
I think it's probably something we're all going to wrestle with forever because I think the thing is it's a as a kind of enabling um, part of the organisation. It, it's it's arguably kind of broader than estates or anything else like that because the scope of digital is is kind of fantastically broad in terms of what it can be brought in to deal with. It, it there's an element of it in everything, and it's just I find it, you know to Toby's point around charming the the kind of um, the sort of CIO 1.0 you've got to stay on top of that otherwise your credibility is shot so it's uh, you know if you come in because I mean I've, I've been really lucky to um, to sort of join that board level um, and but still if you don't get that core IT you know bottom of the triangle that David showed earlier the, the kind of log on times and everything else if that starts to crumble then actually your credibility then to take on some of the bigger stuff around the, the front end, the, the patient facing side of things is you, you, you've got to balance that. So I think it's a really interesting tension where you're trying to be the kind of innovative digital leader talking about new solutions that you don't lose sight of what's what's at the back end and that. But I suppose, you know, the, the key to that, to a point again, is back to that user point of, of, of getting out there and listening to to how people are actually finding the kit. And if, if they're not able to, you know, if they're living in David's Triangle, where the bottom of it isn't the widest part, um, you know, that they'll soon tell you. Um, you know, uh, uh, and we all know, even even Facebook knows as a result of last night that you know, it, it it goes wrong across the it goes wrong across the piece, doesn't it? So I think it's just making sure that um, you've got that engagement there. But I, I just um, it's just been really interesting to see how you both think about it as well, because it is a. Uh, uh, you know, because actually it's quite a big challenge in a big organisation just to keep that 1.0 IT infrastructure, critical systems infrastructure running smoothly with all the supplies you've got and everything else. And then to start kind of, you know, doing visioning sessions for digital transformation, you know, how we're going to bring an RPA to kind of solve things, how we're going to bring an AI. You need a really broad team and a very, very broad skill set. So it's often quite a, quite a significantly larger team than people may expect because you've got to have that kind of core IT ops um, infrastructure and a good one. And then your kind of transformation um, element almost separate but linked at the same time. So um, yeah, I'll stop now because Toby's got his hand up. No, no problem at all. Thank you, Andy. Toby, please, please do add. Sorry, struggling with mute again. It's this mouse. I blame the technology. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, just really to build on and and Andy's uh, kind of point there, I guess. Um, uh, you know about the, the 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 team again and the broad, um, the the breadth of competencies that that we need to deliver a modern, effective, forward-thinking digital function. Um, you know, and 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 I would I would I guess I would argue that. Um, Rephrase. David, David's point is right. If you haven't got a supportive board, you're really going to struggle. Yeah, full stop. Um, uh, I would argue that it's the CIO's role to champion that growth and development of digital capabilities and competencies. Um, and, and, you know, the CIO has a role in influencing change within the board. Um, that can be really tricky. You know, there's, there's no two ways around that. that. That can be really, really, really tricky. Um, I, I'm, I'm fortunate, a bit like Andy, that I sit, I sit on the board, but I didn't come in sitting on the board. I came into a, a, a decimated IT team uh, five years ago um, that had been uh, you know, cut to the bare bones through cost improvement programs. Uh, IT was a cost centre. Um, we had different bits being delivered in different directorates in the organisation of, of, of digital capability, and, and it's taken a number of years to change that narrative and you know and we've grown as a result um, and we brought in new competencies um, but it's been really challenging because as, as David insinuated you know you grow the team and so people say how come IT is growing like that you know you can clearly you know clearly got plenty of staff you can do everything we want you to do and more um, and I'm going well actually you look at our BAU function and we might have grown by four people in five years um, you know, to, to, to do the core infrastructure stuff. Actually, what we brought in is new competencies to do design work, to do to do business analysis, which we never had before because we were living with such historical debt in terms of you know our, our, both our infrastructure technically and and the, the skills to to run it. So actually, we we probably you know almost you know kind of normalised maybe over five years, um, and maybe we're a bit ahead of the curve now um, because we've got some competencies that you know 
maybe some other trusts have, aren't fortunate enough to have, but it's taken five years of hard slog. Um, it's taken a few board members changing, if I'm if I'm completely honest, to 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 really help shift the narrative a little bit, and it's taken a a, a couple of really really supportive CEOs um, to 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 get behind and and give me the autonomy um, to to get on and make make things happen. And if if those sort of you know stars hadn't aligned, uh, you know we'd probably be in a very different position today in in, in my organisation. But you know, I kind of came in and saw it as my job to try and influence that. And, and if, if the change hadn't happened, maybe I'd have moved on um, before now. But but the change has happened and we are on a really good tra trajectory. We haven't solved everything by any stretch of the imagination. We've got problems every day of the week, like everyone else does. Um, but but I, I do think, you know, back to that sort of CIO leading change, it's my responsibility to start trying to drive that 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 change, influence the board members, make, get get relationships with my non-exec directors, so that so that they trust me when I speak, build credibility around the basics, but also around some of those quick win things that solve problems at the front front line, so that so that we're really able to influence and say we can do it, we can make a difference for you guys. We're not going to get it right every day. Actually, we've got some quick burn stuff and we've got some long burn stuff. We've got some big infrastructure programs. They're going to take me eighteen months to solve that Wi-Fi problem, or, or you know, because I've got to replace everything across however many sites or whatever it is but um but but actually i'm, I'm building trust i'm bu building credibility with, with with the board um and therefore we're able to start influencing in a way that we weren't able to do five years ago but it's a slog it's hard work oh brilliant thank you for that toby david is there anything like you'd like to add for that um not really no, I mean, I think, I think the guys have, have hit the nail on the head, you know. Um, it is about credibility. Uh, uh, Toby and Andy are, are very right in, in saying that. But I just think that, you know, education has has got to happen all round, really, um, and awareness. I think that uh, the US, I get the impression the US is a lot further ahead in its recognition of the role of the CIO compared to the UK um, and I think that that's uh, something that you know hopefully over time it will change but I really do think that you know the education of the boards and the, about the role of what a CIO can do is is quite important in my view. Oh, that's brilliant thank you David. Um, any closing points Andy or Toby for what David just said anything else you'd like to add because I appreciate this seems like a quite a hot topic that you both got quite um, different opinions on and, and it's drew out quite a bit of conversation. So a bit. <laughs> um, I, I could riff on about this for ages but um, what I'll just say uh, we had NHS providers with Public Digital come in to do board development session um, for for our board and uh, we I think we were one of the earlier trusts to have it and it's from what I'm hearing their their development sessions have have improved quite a lot over over the time that they've been running them but we got quite a lot of value out of that um, it just helped get us on the same page so you know a bit of a plug for NHS providers but um, um, it, it might be worth look, looking at that because it, it does did kind of help uh, level the playing field and, and get some of our board members kind of on the same page with with some some of the terminology and some of the language that we were using around digital. A little less about the CIO and the role of the CIO specifically, but but around digital and what we were you know potentially able to do uh, in that space, we found it quite useful. Oh, brilliant! Thank you, Toby. I mean, personally, I think your role is very important, especially going forward. This transformation is massive at the moment. I think people starting to understand the benefits. Like I said, as long as you kind of put the user at the forefront of, like, you know, the focus of it, you know, everyone at some point will become on board. I think it's easier with people through kind of like my generation, generation above me, because they kind of grew up with digital, and you know, they adapt to it very, very quickly. I think some of the people who've, you know, kind of and it pushed upon them, it's quite difficult for them to get on board. Um, hopefully going forward, you know, it will get better. And I do have a close, Andy, please, please. You know, I'm just, just going to come back to you on one point, actually, there, just on the uh, on the younger generation and tech, actually. I, I think there is there is a counterpoint to that, okay. in that you are used to tech that works seamlessly. And, you know, we're now getting into a point of, you know, we'll provide corporate uh, tablets, that are the same as the tablet that you would buy from uh, a retail provider and the retail version that you'll get will work. The, the, the user experience will be fairly seamless because you, you're doing personal stuff on it. But actually, when we put a corporate wrap on it, 
will change the way that works and it won't be quite the same and it might not be quite the same user experience because actually we've got to take an additional cyber security wrap or anything else yes. like that and around it so actually then i think sometimes the pushback from that particular generation could be stronger because actually they expect it to work as seamlessly as everything else that they've grown up with so i think i was just to, to highlight i think the challenge is actually it's just people broadly all the way across but um i think uh, I, I i don't disagree with you but i, I just think it's a, it's another challenge you, you kind of have to face in that side of things yeah no i do you know what i completely agree i mean we kind of take for granted how easy things are like one of the reasons that i do prefer apple products is because they just they just work a lot more seamlessly, like you say. And when I've tried to use a Samsung, it's not as. I'm be very careful not to mention any brand names. I'm doing the Blue Peter test on this one. Oh, so okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's brilliant. No, um, I'd like to ask one question before we summarise. So I don't know if you all know Mike Emery. You all know, know Mike Emery? He's yeah, director of digital and strategy. David Newey knows him. He asked a question in um, the podcast that we hosted the other day with Brad. And he asked a question and he said, what was your favorite stuffed toy uh, when you were a child? Snoopy. 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 <laughs> Snoopy. Yeah. Andy? I'm not sure I can remember that far back. <laughs> I, I really didn't like Teddy. It probably says something for me as an individual that I just, yeah, I, I was never fond of them. So <laughs> I think I had a bear at some point, but I don't think I could really describe it. Sorry. No, no problem. No problem. It was just, it was, it was quite uh, amusing. It kind of like, you know, brought the thing to a bit of a nice end. And I thought I'd do the same. Personally, for me, it was a little tiger one. I think it was a rust toy or something from Boots. I remember getting it as a kid. Um, but yeah. Right, I think, you know, that's we're just within time as well. I'd like to thank you all for taking part. I really do appreciate it. I've had a fantastic time speaking with you all, and I feel like I have learned a lot during this conversation. Um, it's very interesting to see the three different points. You seem to agree on a few things, and I like how, you know, a lot of you kind of built on what the other said, and it kind of um, created more thoughts around that. Um, if you like, if anyone would like to comment before we leave, and that's more than happy to do so. If not, then I will let you uh, go about your day. Um, I, I'd just like to say, you know, a big shout out to all the digital service teams that are working, you know, in NHS trusts across, across the country with a Cinderella service, I like to think and, and say, uh, but without us, you know, things wouldn't work. And, and there's a lot of people out there who work very hard to support service in difficult circumstances. So, I'm definitely stealing that Cinderella service comment. I like that. But yeah, no, I, it's been really, it's been really good. It's been really nice to catch up with uh, with sort of fellow professionals in the space and yourself, Tom. So uh, thank you for facilitating it. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Toby, anything you'd like to add? Uh, just uh, thank you very much. Been been a joy, uh, Andy. We haven't met before, so it's been great to connect with you. Yeah, nice to meet you both. Yeah, David, good to see you again, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you too. You too. Thanks so much, Tom. No, you're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys, and thank you very much.